The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Ah, it's been so long since we talked, uh, since we had that Westbrook trade. We had to go about a week. But uh, with Danny out exploring the internet less wilds of Montana and Wyoming, got one of our favorite guests uh, to join us here. It's been a while since we talked to him. Want to get his thoughts on the playoffs and the top 10 players in the NBA, which he recently did a, a video about the master of the YouTube algorithms. Ben Taylor, how you doing, Ben? Wow, quite an introduction. I'm 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 hanging in there. How you doing? <laughs> doing great. So uh, in Vancouver right now. Uh, unfortunately, my car is on Vancouver Island where it is getting a flat tire repaired. They didn't have it in stock, so they had to get it shipped there. So we rented a car and continued the trip to Vancouver. But tomorrow I will be spending eight hours taking the ferry back to Vancouver Island and then back again. This will be like our I think seventh ferry ride of uh, the trip. But we'll be on dry land the remainder of the way i love i love how every time i come on you make it a point like we just we cut straight to basketball and then we end up chit-chatting about something else for a few minutes at the start like vancouver island ferries in this case well i do yeah we're not going to talk about that anymore uh <laughs> <laughs> all right let's but do uh, it. I, I do want to tell people if you're if you're interested in following our our trip uh nate b duncan on instagram uh posting our our route every day and some of our uh, best food options so uh and and speaking of which we'll save this to the end to avoid really boring people but since you participated for the first time in the caesar's buffet uh eat off this year i wanted to uh to get your thoughts on it and uh if it's anything like your eating speed i know it's going to take a few hours for you to discuss that so wow we'll save it to the end i know i do have some buffet analytics that I want to share with the people. Uh, okay. Well, don't 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 skip the basketball talk and go right to that, people. Let's uh, let's lock in here. And so, first thing I wanted to talk about: you're doing a lot of videos during the playoffs. I obviously was recording every night, going to a lot of those games. The NBA seems like we may be at a bit of another transition point now with the demise of Golden State. The playoffs were played in maybe a different way than they have been the last couple of years. So what were some of the things that really stuck out to you during these playoffs as overall trends? Besides lack of sleep? <laughs> Um, I mean, it was the the schedule's great, but it's it's relentless. And then the, this uh, this free agency period has been crazy. So besides those things, um, boy, I, I would say I, I let's just take a step back. I've been sitting around kind of wondering for the last few seasons if we're going to see defensive countermeasures to all of the offensive explosion and expansion we've seen. I mean, we had the record-setting offensive rating, I think, in 2017, and they basically blew that out of the water this year by jumping from, like, 108.8 
offensive efficiency league average was right at 110, um, which was nuts. I was never sure we'd ever see that. So my first thought was really about defensive countermeasures coming into play and the success of teams like a Toronto, obviously, but Milwaukee had, you know, some monster defensive moments, Philadelphia against Toronto. I mean, Philadelphia for all of their struggles offensively was a bouncing ball away from being in the conference finals and and on the doorstep uh, of the finals. So that was sort of at a high level, like my first step back was, hmm, is is defense, are we seeing schemes? Are we seeing the final sort of stage, the final form, if you will, of length and the implementation of all these athletes and long players and switchable, you know, et cetera, et cetera, finally kind of taking hold? I'll I'll pause there because I really want to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. I think there are a number of factors that at play. I mean, number one is that Golden State really just changed the league so much with that death lineup. And they really didn't get a chance after KD went down the first time to play that other than in that game five in Toronto for 12 minutes and then KD tears his Achilles. So and obviously they looked really good in that period. It, they're also hitting every shot. You can't take it too much uh, away from that. So I don't know. And we thought that maybe Milwaukee might be the other team that was just on that level uh, offensively. because you know, And maybe Houston as well. But it does seem like, and this is a, a point I've made before, that with the demise now of Golden State, with Golden State not being able to play th- that unit. Now, if they'd had another shooter, maybe, you know, the Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green at center still would have been totally unstoppable. I, I tend to think it might have been, but they just, you know, they didn't have that Harrison Barnes type. So I don't know if it's just, you know, Golden State was just so good. And I would have loved to have seen Houston going up against, you know, some of these other great defenses for the East as well, see whether they could have done well. I think I have a feeling that you're right there that those East defenses would have stopped Houston reasonably well. Uh, So I I think part of it is the demise of Golden State. And I think part of it is what you're saying that teams have come up with some countermeasures. And I think where I was most impressed was Toronto's ability to really cause defensive problems for Milwaukee, even though I picked them in that series. And the Toronto-Philly series, you know, that one, I think a lot of that was Toronto just missing shots. I mean, like Van Fleet and Danny. I mean, like nobody could hit a three. Right, These guys right. were really good three-point shooters. So that might have been part of it. That's why I picked Toronto in the next series. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested to see, especially this Philly team this year now. You know, I think that could be one of the greatest defenses that we've ever seen. I mean, that's going to be incredible. And and Toronto, too. I mean, this is something that you talked about a little bit that you, uh, you might want to elaborate on. of just how good that Toronto defense was historically in the playoffs this year well yeah i mean they they finished with so if you look at sort of this concept of relative defensive rating that is defensive rating relative to the opponent so in the regular season we can just take league average and it's essentially going to be the average offensive efficiency of your opponents and good teams are you know whatever five six seven points better than league average like utah or something like that but in the playoffs historically uh, we have only seen a team, I think once, I think the 2004, the legendary 2004 Detroit Pistons held their playoff opponents like 10 and a half points below their regular season offensive efficiency. And the only team to ever do that. And the Raptors came in at the end of the finals. Now, it's not perfect because it doesn't always account for injuries and things like that. But the totality of their playoff defense over the four series, they held their opponents to like nine points below 
their regular season efficiency. It was just historically good. And to me, another one of the big takeaways from the playoffs, it was just like insanely impressive how good their defense was, not just with the players on the court, but the versatility of the schemes from series to series, opponent-specific schemes, and how when you get really smart, athletic, long players on the court, they can just wreak havoc on other offenses. Yeah, and I think Nick Nurse did a very underrated job. I mean, the the stuff that he did against Steph Curry with the box one, they even went for a triangle and two briefly. People forget that in the Philly series, maybe their best lineup was Gasol and Ibaka together, which was kind of anathema to what in theory had been winning before. I mean, I thought... the one thing he could have done was try to match up Gasol with Embiid a little bit more a little earlier in that series, but you'd be hard-pressed to come up with you know where things really went wrong for him. And you saw, in particular, you had Mike Budenholzer and Steve Kerr really, really searching. Now, part of that, obviously, was personnel limitations and the injuries in the case of the Warriors, but you know, I thought Nurse was really a step ahead of his opponent mostly. Ironically, I'd say probably the the guy who did the best job of matching up with him was Brett Brown, who I thought did a pretty good job, and he was uh, rumored to be fired coming in, into the series. So yeah, I, I thought that was really good, and just having all those smart vets. I mean, they just don't. There's nobody on offense or defense for Toronto in their top eight guys who couldn't defend their position passably and hit shots. And that was really, you know, Gasol every once in a while would kind of, you know, pass up shot because he's still a good passer and a great defender. And uh, so, yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, the the lack of weaknesses that they showed and their ability to play multiple styles, even with the same personnel at at times, was extremely impressive to me. So are you are you as a big guy yourself, as a legendary shot blocker of other journalists? um, (laughs) That's that's not a Twitter reference, by the way. That's an actual basketball reference. Uh, Are you psyched for sort of a return to size, if you will? Maybe we'll see more lineups going forward with two bigs, assuming the bigs have skills that, you know, outside shooting and passing, namely. Well, it's funny. Ethan Strauss says that I'm actually harder on big guys because that's uh, what I was in theory. Uh, I, I don't know if I believe that psychological explanation it's more that i just you know big guys are generally less skilled than smaller players so I, i've liked the transition to playing smaller so, i do think that and i think also part of this is something that gets talked about too like when people are like oh the demise of the center position and you know the all-star game got changed to being front court because the centers were so bad that was just i think that was just a historical blip in the early part of this decade where like the centers just weren't any good Right. You know, it, I think that was more the problem than, you know, and now you, you've you got a lot of guys used to be power forward to centers and you've got, you know, much more skilled guys like your Porzingis, your Towns, your Embiid. Like there wasn't anyone like that in the league five years ago. And so maybe that was more what the so-called demise of the center position was. It's just there weren't good players then that you know, centers couldn't be, you know, Jokic is another one, right? Like where is Nikola Jokic five years ago when DeAndre Jordan was getting first team all NBA uh, as just a dunker and shot blocker? Yeah. So I, I do think there's just better players now. And then with the demise of this Warriors team, who is the team that you now just can't play a center against defensively where you're either going to have to double the ball or you're going to get killed by three-pointers off the dribble or guys coming off screens for threes the way Golden State would. So, no, I do think we're going to see uh, 
big guys become more relevant we'll see whether you know the absolute whether the big guy can be the best player on a championship team we'll see you know i mean i still think you know as we uh, we'll get into some of the top 10 players but you know i do think those big guys are still a level below in part maybe just because they're young so uh yeah i am excited to see more uh, post play a little bit and more skilled big guys to be sure especially at the latest levels i'm i'm totally with you on that idea of it being a historical blip so such a small percentage of the population is seven feet tall that it makes sense that you could have little ebbs and flows and yeah aren't there like 40 americans living right now who are seven feet or over or something like that. i think I, I, I saw that at one point that used to be the number i i assume it's slightly higher now because i think that number is 10 or 20 years old but it used to be something like if you were an american and you were seven feet tall there were so few of them that you had like a 45 percent chance of playing in the nba at one point uh it's it's crazy so along those lines who are some of the guys that you mentioned that have jumped back into this richer talent pool now they're from international waters so expanding the talent pool helps you prevent that kind of dearth. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess Anthony Davis, who isn't really like traditional center size, is the guy that you would look at as an American center. Yeah, there, there aren't really any other ones. If you want to, I mean, Towns grew up in the U.S. But he plays internationally for Dominican Republic, and obviously Embiid and Jokic uh, and Porzingis. Yeah, and Porzingis yep. too. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah, that's a great point. So uh, another point I wanted to circle back to. I just this whole conversation about small ball and center, and I mean, you ask it. I think you ask a germane question here: who who is out there that you now feel like you have to take your center off the floor? And I want to ask you something about that in a second. But first, when I see this conversation, I always want to go back to the history. And the history to me is that coaches for years have been playing either offensive-centric lineups or defensive-centric lineups. So you go back to the early 1970s, mid-1970s, and old our old friend Dr. Jack Ramsey with the Buffalo Braves, the, where the Clippers used to be, he started playing Bob McAdoo, who is essentially like a, the modern-day version of a tall forward. He's like a skinny 6'10", likes to face up, shoot, and drive. And he just said, we're going to start playing him at center, and we're going to eat it a little bit on defensively, uh, on the defensive side of the ball, but we're going to make up for it on offense. This, to me, is exactly what D'Antoni did by moving Amari Stoudemire to center. There, there are instances of this throughout the history of the league. The question to me is whether or not Golden State is an aberration precisely because of two factors. Draymond Green being so good defensively and having the offensive, you know, essentially being able to play point guard or pass at times, uh, and then also being able to pair that with all these shooters because maybe it was obvious to other people, but I was a little, you know, hit in the face by the reality that the Warriors not having any other forwards to pair with Green basically meant that they couldn't run this type of lineup out there anymore. So to me, it's kind of a question mark that sits around this whole conversation of like, is this just unique to that team, that kind of lineup construction? Or is this something that can be a trend going forward? Because if you get the right set of skills in big men, you're you're good to run out like a, a death lineup type. Yeah, I'm thinking it's really, it might just be unique to that team. I mean, this is, there's a reason and when Kevin Durant signed there and even before that I mean they won the 73 games before that and yeah they got a little lucky in clutch situations although you could say that part of that was that 
they were able to play that death lineup at the end of games with green and center so yeah i don't know that i mean you think of all the aspects of that team steph curry clay thompson anytime they come off the screen basically they're just going to be open if you don't switch it maybe there's like a couple teams in the league that had enough perimeter defense who could just like get over screens over and over and over and over on those guys throughout a game in a conventional style then you have all the size and strength that they had on the wing, not only green at center, but Iguodala, Clay Thompson, Harrison Barnes, and then KD able to switch two through five. And then the incredible intelligence that they had as well. So you look at the way they forced teams that you just basically had to switch defensively. You know, Houston changed their entire strategy. They're the only ones who really had any success stopping that team when they were healthy. Uh, And then offensively as well, we're really the only thing you could do is switch. And then also, I think you look back at, and I'm very interested to see the Lakers this year. It doesn't look like they're going this way too much with the DeMarcus signing, but you are we going to see the LeBron with four shooters around him approach now again? Is there going to be enough talent around him? Is he going to have enough? Because it wasn't only Golden State in that period. Once Ty Lue took over in Cleveland, it was LeBron with four shooters around him. You know, Kyrie, Kevin Love. I mean, that was a team that really Golden State, when they went with Green at center, was the only team that could even think about stopping them. So those two teams to me, you know, maybe those are historical aberrations with, you know, the maybe the greatest player of all time and that level of shooting around him and uh Golden State and they're all all those unique elements. It may be a very long time before we see teams that just completely change the way a normal team has to play and you know, where twenty eight of the league's thirty teams are almost drawing dead against them at, before the games even started because of those stylistic elements it's it's interesting you bring up that cleveland team i was running some uh multi-year team efficiency numbers this week and the offenses the playoff offenses of those cleveland teams in those in that stretch there 17 and 18 well 18 i guess they lost Kyrie, so 16 and 17 when they were i mean those offenses were insane some of the best playoff offenses ever so that kind of leads me to what I wanted to ask you. I think I know the answer, but do you do you see the success of the of the death lineup in Golden State changing kind of the the shape of the personnel on the court in terms of getting bigs out of the game, playing people off the court? Do you see that as primarily a defensive thing or an offensive thing? All right. Well, I will answer that uh, right after we do a quick read here. So I'm going to tell you about our friends at Rhone, one of the most underrated Western Hemisphere rivers, by the way. That is what Rhone is named after. They make perhaps the finest quality active wear that I have encountered. Been doing some hiking on this trip that I'm on right now. Really enjoy wearing my Rhone gear. The rain long sleeve in Aruba Blue Heather is my favorite long sleeve workout shirt. Also their uh, courtside quarter zip. Great stuff uh, for doing an early morning hike when it's still a little cold out. And it's not just workout stuff that they have anymore. Their new commuter collection is awesome for the office, long flights, commutes. They offer everything, pants, polos, shorts. It's all lightweight, comfortable, all wrinkle-free as well. It's good for all weather. If it happens to be a, a day when it's raining, you live in the rainy Pacific Northwest, which I'm visiting right now. Commuter collection might be pretty good for you. The way to get started with them is at rhone.com, R-H-O-N-E.com slash Capspace. And then use the promo code Capspace to get 20% off your first purchase. So double Capspace here, rhone.com slash Capspace. And then the promo code Capspace, easier than Capspace, because we talk about it all the time here on the program. That's rhone.com slash Capspace. And then use that promo code Capspace as well to let them know that you came from us. So 
that's an interesting question because you'd say all right if you're gonna play your big center i mean it's a sorry cop-out answer but it's probably both right the switching on offense most teams the what they would do is you run pick and roll with your big center maybe he's got some gravity around the rim and but he's probably not going to be able to just post up against a mismatch you know there weren't any great teams that they went against there but you know that that center is more on the on the court for his defense but if they're switching on on their defensive end and now your pick and roll is rendered impotent because they're switching at and this guy can't take advantage of a mismatch and then on the other end he's not having the same defensive impact because they're just bombing threes on you and anyone who can't get away from the rim is going to be a defensive liability you're like well there's no reason to keep on the floor offensively we got to keep up with these guys and defensively his impact is muted as well because he you know unless he's like a Rudy Gobert type he's not really helping us that much so yeah I think it's it's on both ends the inability to take advantage offensively because there are some teams who have great offensive centers you could say okay we're gonna kill these guys in the offensive class and we're gonna post up we're gonna force double teams and that's how we're gonna beat them and have that be the idea but if that wasn't your center then yeah that guy was pretty useless against golden state unless he could also switch or really have a ton of mobility out on the floor defensively as well and i think i think organically that's what happened i think coaches probably came to view it that way or staff started to say hey you know if the defensive impact of this guy he's out there for defense and he's being neutered and we're not getting that much on offense essentially we've got to pull him off the floor so i think I think I, even though you said it was a cop-out, I think you kind of covered the history of, of what actually happened. The thing I've really been noodling on, especially watching the re- the way Toronto was defending Golden State, even though they weren't 100%, is how much of what's going on on defense is about this isolation switching issue, or how much of it goes back to like the thing that's just seared in my mind is, can Tristan Thompson get out on a screen to help Curry or Clay Thompson to help on those guys when they fly off those screens. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. What 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 is it specifically that has pulled big men off the court? Is it Draymond Green playing center, or is it having to cover the perimeter against players that move and shoot? And now we're in the super stretched you know era of the league where guys are going to be shooting from 25 27 28 feet out is that it and is if if so how do we factor that in going forward well Draymond Green playing center is also leading to having four other shooters on the floor with him right if you're if you're playing Draymond Green and then you're playing another center as well and then you also have Draymond able to handle the ball uh, and so that to some extent is usually going to pull his guy away from the hoop Uh, so I, I think that that's really him in combination with the rest of the lineup where you're reducing the number of non-shooters on the floor and then at that point when these guys screen for each other you're just you're drawing dead unless you're switching or someone's just going to get open or you're going to have a or you're going to have to double team off any time of a screen and that's going to lead you with a four on three or a three on two going to the rim but you know I don't see again where that's coming from now you know who has guys with that level of skill who can also defend I mean there's there's certainly going to be plenty of teams that could just all right we're going to go all offense or we're going to try and put it a unit like that on the floor but you know are they going to be able to stop anybody the way the Warriors could like probably not I think you've talked me in to moving the Philadelphia 76ers up my most interesting teams ranking. I've got a big board 
in the in the house most interesting teams it's enormous it's the longest board it's ever been there's just so many fascinating teams to me yeah and is, is your wife like that does it really uh really spruce the place up it's right in the living room it's it's a, yeah yeah just a big it's like in dr strange love it's the big board it takes up yeah you, you just rest it on the couch right it's like it's so you know just sit on the floor while you watch tv because the board can't be disturbed nate this is the this is the comedic injection that the dunked on listeners are are asking for i i, I hear it in the street after the mock draft episode i mean the mock offseason episode um where were we you've completely distracted me from my point. <laughs> uh, philly moving up your most philly interesting team yes rankings. because right because are we just really going to see a pairing of two traditional big men who by the way both happen to be really good they're two of the best defensive yeah. players in the league not only two traditional big men but also no traditional point guard sized guy as well yeah i mean is that so do you think that's sustainable do you think that with josh richardson there is that enough i don't you know i I confess i don't watch as many it's not like i'm tuning in for 50 miami heat games a year i only watch them a little bit do you think that that is sustainable yeah there is going to be a lot of pressure on richardson and horford and and tobias harris as well to make shots and then there'll also be pressure on harris and richardson to be pick and roll ball handlers and you know i think that would be the weakness of their team that stands out to some degree you know there's going to be a lot of pressure on ben simmons and joel Embiid as well to prove that they can create offense at the end of games but yeah i mean that's going to be you know harris is not a great defender but he's got enough size he's not going to just get completely blown by and they've got so much length and smarts and help ability behind him uh, and also, I mean, the the other thing, too, is that they'll probably be playing a conventional style, so you're not going to have to worry about getting Harris switched down to the wrong matchup as much or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very interested to see what their offense looks like, but... Uh, for uh, that defense again i mean i i'm really just like where do you attack there you're i mean especially richardson is just he's such a nasty on-ball defender you know him guarding the point guard and uh, joel Embiid guarding guarding the paint you know he's as a guy getting over screens getting into guys he's just the perfect guy to play with Embiid who, who wants to drop back and protect the rim right and that length is additive you know you can get things that are greater than the sum of their parts that way i very much feel Feel like that's what happened to that 04 Pistons back line the second they added Rashid Wallace back there. You see it in other cases. So I think Harris, to your point, just the fact that they're all going to be so long is going to cover up certain deficiencies. And yeah, the, the the I'm psyched about the defense, but the offense, going back to what we were saying earlier, I mean, Brett Brown is going to have to change the way that offense looks and runs a little bit. There, there's no J.J. Redick. There's no Landry Shaman. I'm not sure if we're going to see the same number of handoffs and everything. I, I'm still fascinated by the fact that when Simmons is out there, they're basically going to have three bigs on the court from a half court perspective. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you want to, you know, pontificate on that more, but they're they're the all of it, the size, the lineup combinations, Brett Brown, the the potential for the historic defense. They're they're definitely moving up my my interesting board. Yeah, and I think they're going to run a lot through Horford, high low action. You know, maybe uh, Simmons and Embiid screening for one another to try it with Horford making the pass from the top, trying to you know get post ups like right next to the rim. I mean, I think they're going to they're going to post up a lot, and they've got. I mean, between Simmons and Embiid and Horford, one of those guys, if not two, are always going to have a mismatch. So I, th- I think that's going to be a big part of it, though. Bron's going to have to redesign his offense to put those guys into positions to. Succeed 
succeed where it's not just all right he's backing down against a static defense and the help can come but where no we're actually going to get these guys looks close to the rim on quick hitting plays where they can really use their size to an advantage so let's switch it here because this is uh you've been uh following the offseason really closely you mentioned to me ahead of time which i i was really excited to hear about i don't know exactly what they are yet uh just uh, some thoughts on how the this new era of player movement and you know stars switching teams every two or three years which may be overblown but we'll could assume that the trends of this summer will continue for now uh how that affects uh, team building when you're really trying to put together a co- coherent team to compete for a championship Man, you're going to make me express unformed thoughts. Uh, These are, yeah, these are just things that I've been noodling around in my head with as all of this stuff is unfolding. And and you alluded to one right away, which is the number of stars per team, the way the cap structure is playing out. I don't think it's a coincidence that now we have this concept of like, who's the best duo? Because it seems really difficult by design to get a three-star team. Uh, do you know is that are we kind of at the end of a three-star team era obviously if you draft a young player and that player develops very quickly you can do it that way but the thing i'm really thinking about is if i'm a front office and i'm constructing teams now uh does do you really want to focus on two stars that fit together then building the right kind of for lack of a better term middle class players right guys that aren't going to demand max contracts but they're not minimums they've got value they've got skills they're three and d uh do you need to sprinkle in the right number of those guys that fit with the stars and then going back to our conversation about toronto you know if you can create a a versatile flexible roster with the way you spend that money on those six or seven guys because it's been a kind of a truism for a long time depth is great but when you get into the playoffs your seventh eighth ninth tenth guy become significantly less important so that that's the i'll stop there because that's the first thing i'm kind of uh, playing with yeah well uh, and i think this year maybe it from a cap standpoint was maybe you could say the first kind of normal year because we've had essentially since 2014 2015 we've known the cap spike was coming then the cap spike comes in 2016 27 of the 30 teams use cap space to sign players then 2017 there's still maybe more cap space around the league than you would normally have 2018 everyone spent so much money in the previous two years when they had it that everyone's up against the tax you see all these one-year deals and now maybe because there are so many players available this isn't a normal year uh maybe next year is more of a normal year but there are few free agents available or is it though or is it yeah is it is it is it going to be off and on are we going to have another year like this in two years right so yeah keep going that's what i'm yeah yeah no that's that's a good point i mean i haven't made my list yet of all the 2021 free agents but you know with Kawhi and paul george on there it's gonna and Giannis potentially as well it's it's gonna look like a pretty strong class and obviously next year other than ad there's no one that you would look at as a superstar who would be available at this point in time but yeah so to me it's tough to say like toronto is an interesting case right they're kind of the you know the ultimate of let's get these non-stars who really have a lot of value but i think it's interesting that really none of their major players in toronto came in via free agency almost all those guys were smart trades draft picks and even even Kawhi obviously it was a trade so it was marcus also their big salary guys ibaka was brought in and traded and then they re-signed him as well in, in a deal that was probably kind of pre-arranged a little bit uh when they traded for him 
uh they traded a homegrown star into rosen it does seem pretty clear to me that you know getting the three-star approach when those guys aren't necessarily homegrown is really really difficult i mean the lakers came close to it uh this year but obviously the math would have been extremely difficult for them uh and part of that is because lebron is already on that 35 percent max salary that late in his career so it's tough to get guys especially when you're looking at guys at the 30 percent, 35 percent max yeah you're you're gonna struggle to build out your team the only team we've really seen go the free agent route to get three stars was miami in 2010 even golden state you know their stars were all homegrown and then the cap spike enabled them to get kd so yeah i'm not sure that the three-star team with free agency we're gonna see a lot of that and then there's oh you got to build your team out with minimums i think what we'll see more often is all right you've still got a really good guy on a rookie contract maybe you use his small cap hold to get extra cap space after his fourth year or you know you've signed someone to a team-friendly extension who then blows up uh you know, you, you could see something like that maybe happen. Uh, and, and that's how you build out a deeper team. Or you're, you're going to be going the route of two stars. And then, all right, we'll try and make some trades. We got to, you can't just have minimum guys because you need guys who can at least match salary to get a, a, another star. So so we'll see. I mean, I, I'm so much of it just comes down to the whimsy of players. And we've seen KD and Kawhi really make decisions to leave great situations that are pretty much unprecedented you know maybe the only one other one you could look back at is Shaq leaving Orlando and KD leaving OKC but those are conference finals teams I mean to leave a finals team and just go somewhere else where you're, you're building something totally new is pretty unprecedented so that was that was a long rambling answer there but I'm not sure what to make of you know the idea that three stars are dead because it's just it was really tough to get that to begin with really right I mean even in Cleveland where you had the three stars with love Kyrie and LeBron well they had the number one overall pick to trade for Kevin Love and they also had LeBron I mean these are very unique situations where you know that has always been to get to three stars so I, I think I don't think that that's dead necessarily. It just was always rare, and it's going to continue to be rare. Right, and I think uh, those are all great, great points referencing those. Good. Teams. Were you able to keep track of them? Considering uh, I rambled on for like I, five minutes, no. I feel I, feel I, free to interrupt I, me on my own podcast. By I the put way, them on my big board. Um, yeah. So, I, <laughs> but but this is exactly why to me the the Friday night earthquake when we were at summer league in Vegas was if anything more about what happened with Paul George because that was a new level of team building of team construction I understand there's a unique circumstance oh, see, see I just dis- I disagree with this okay he's go got ahead two, he's got two years left on his contract well I, Jimmy I, Jimmy Butler Kyrie Irving asked for a trade with two years left on his contract I mean like this this is I mean because he chose to stay in OKC and a lot was made of that one year ago you know people are like oh my god I can't this is so unexpected and you know he didn't request a trade and we didn't have this like that's drama of two months for it to kind of sink into the consciousness of like okay he's not going to be there anymore it hit so quickly people were like oh man like this is unprecedented then it's like no he had two years left in his contract we see that happen all the time before yeah it's less about the two years to me and more about the idea that he didn't necessarily seek out a trade it was sort of, if you believe the story, this outside injection. So if you go back to 2010 offseason. Yeah, I'm sure OKC would love for everyone to believe that. So you don't buy that. <laughs> I, I mean, you never know, right? I mean, it's it's to everyone's advantage 
to have the narrative go this way that i mean and then you heard some like reports like oh yeah you know actually there was a little bit of unhappiness in okc before that and there probably should have been because they weren't going anywhere you know i I mean i think if you look back at where they were of like okay russell westbrook is making this huge contract that doesn't make sense for the team anymore he's just going to get worse they're just going to get worse paul george thought okay you know we could make another run at it here if i resign but you know it's clear that they're not going to uh so i mean if you just look at their team and and, i mean and and this is it too right everyone is saying afterwards oh man sam presley this is an awesome job like he made the right decision blah blah to to rebuild and well how is that the right decision after all this happened but it wasn't before all of it happened right like I, i think it was if you really look at their situation this makes a lot more sense it was just considered a surprise is just considered like oh well they're just going to keep the scene together what else can they do yeah oh i completely buy that the cards that okc was holding they were very happy to trade them in i i'm i'm totally on board with that I, I, how many other two-year contract so i think the thing to me that feels unique and maybe it's not you're going to have a better historical register to draw from right now how many other times in the off season have we seen this two years out? I mean, he he just signed, right? So the season ended. He had two full years left. We haven't even gotten to the to the summer before yeah. that season. That's what I'm getting at. If if that starts to be in play more, if that idea of sort of disruption, something's not going right, and I've heard other other podcasters talk about this since. Now your clock starts to get shortened everywhere. If you're a front office, you start to go, okay, we'll be more preemptive with these kinds of moves, that to me is what starts to, and that was my other big takeaway here, which is that if we're going to see stuff like this, the number of years that stars stay on a particular team seems like it's going to shrink. And so we, you and I very much grew up in an era where you had a star and he largely stayed with one team. Maybe he switched in the middle of his career. And for many, many years, the front office tried to build around that star. Is that structure now going to be compressed and shrunk to, I I don't know, Nate, you help me, two or three year team stretches at this point? That's that's really the thing that blew me away about the Paul George situation. You know, someone had this thought and i i do so much reading i i apologize that i can't remember who it was but basically saying once these guys change teams once that they're going to change teams again now sometimes that's just because they're no longer even superstars right like dwight howard for example when he left houston he wasn't a superstar anymore you know i mean that that was but and so that's a big part of why you're going to see more player movement i think there when you're you know or darren williams gets waived by the nets or something like that but the point was made that especially you know if these guys are changing teams seven eight years into their careers that you know they probably are just going to change teams again especially because hey once you've done it once it's like kind of easier right i think you're when you've been in a place for seven years eight years off your rookie contract so i think you still have the idea of being able to build around a player like Zion Williamson or Luka Doncic. I mean, those teams aren't like, oh man, we're on the clock right now, right? And I think the the Pels kind of did that a little bit with Anthony Davis and we saw that they were just living way too short term and, you know, Dell Demps was also worried about getting fired every year. And so, you know, they pushed their chips in too early. Maybe it'll lead to a feeling of more pressure in those situations. But to me, I think that you're 
you're better off just trying to build long-term sustainability, especially with these rookies. Now, what could change that is something I talked about with Amin El-Hassan on a pod that I did with him for the NBA's Summer League podcast of why doesn't a player you know who's two years into his career agitate for a trade or someone even who is drafted before they even play for the team we haven't seen that since steve francis in 1999 if you start to get trade requests from guys who are still on their rookie deals you know if like someone like devin booker is like all right forget it phoenix i'm done with this like i'm out of here like you guys haven't built something around me uh that's when i think you're really going to you might start seeing that and where it might get to be a major problem for the league where you don't have a chance to build around these guys they want out as early as two years in and you know that was a major problem back you know before we had the rookie scale as well you know chris weber negotiated a contract where he could like opt out after a year and like and and ended up having to get traded to washington because he didn't like don nelson so there there's uh that was what the rookie scale was designed to change the owners still have the power with the rookie scale and then the restricted free agency and guys want to get paid on that big first contract so as long as you have six or seven years at the start of their career i think it's fine if you get to where those guys are successfully getting out we really see more player empowerment earlier in guys careers that is when i think it's going to become a major consideration uh for some of these teams yeah and that's the that last one is the question to me because if you look at something like um bill simmons trade value column all the time the the point i hear about the rookie contracts is these guys people really view them as seven years or something right you get the rookie you get an extension you, you get that big deal that you sign with a team it's really longer than just the first couple of years that's how people have traditionally viewed it i mean i'm not even sure you have to go to a guy wanting out two years in i'm just what happens to the landscape if the second these guys are coming in at 18 19 years old we're going to have the high school class probably coming back in 2022 what happens if they're just out and moving to another team the second they start to hit stardom at 22 or 23 years old? That That's that's the one for me. All right, let's take another quick break here. And then I want to talk about Ben. He did his own top 10 players in the league video. Differed quite a bit from the one that we did in March, although you, you did yours after the playoffs, right? So, so you have some more I did it at the end of the I did it at the end of the playoffs. And then the second yeah. I finished, I went and looked yours up. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and obviously there have been uh, some injuries as well. So uh, we'll be right back uh, with Ben in just a moment here. So taking this huge road trip that I'm on now with my wife was perfect timing to have Blinkist back as a sponsor. My wife and I are going to be about 10 times smarter by the time we're done with this trip. Because of Blinkist, we are joining the 10 million people who are using Blinkist right now. They've got this massive library of thousands of nonfiction books and it condenses them down to just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to it's funny i actually had the idea for blinkist independently years ago because i was like man i read these nonfiction books and you know i'm reading them for knowledge to help me in my life but you know am i really taking away much more than some key points from this am i really remembering all 300 pages of this book i just read to use going forward like no actually if i could just figure out what the key points of this are. I could save myself a lot of time. And Blinkist actually went ahead and created this service that I really wanted. So they've got some really good books out there. Uh, One of my favorites, Emotional Intelligence uh, by Daniel Goleman, really a a revolutionary book that introduced a lot of concepts about why maybe not the smartest people are not the ones who are the most successful all the time. Really enjoyed that one. There's The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Sadly, I'm never going to get this quite down to to four hours, but that's all right. I really like my job, so 
I'm in good shape there. They even have uh, some books that are a little bit more about storytelling, like Becoming by Michelle Obama, Fire and Fury by Michael Wolf. The way to get started at Blinkist, that's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist, is to go to Blinkist.com slash Capspace to start your free seven-day trial. So if you're going on a trip, you know you're going to be spending a lot of time in the car. Over the next week or so, this is a perfect time to give them a try at Blinkist.com slash Capspace. And don't forget that slash Capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. All right, so uh, what do you think is the best way to present who you you had in in your list you want to just start at the top and read it off uh in scintillating fashion here oh um boy well let me say this anytime i make a list uh i like the idea of making a list to connect you know put the kind of rubber to the road if you will to connect ideas and compare them but the actual number i know you guys do tiers you guys like tiers. I just like sort of ranges because the actual number sometimes is fuzzy, like one or three or two or five. They can be very close. But I really see sort of players as having like error bands, almost like what's the high end, what's the low end. And to, yeah. and to me, that helps encapsulate uh, the way I see a player next to other players. So if we you want me to run through the list from top to bottom with that in mind, is that the... Well, I, yeah, or I, I think that... Let me see what the best way to do this is. Great preparation here. I, I mean, if if you want to hit on some of the some of the guys that maybe you think differ the most from con- conventional wisdom, that might be a, a way to approach this. Well, if we start at the top with Steph Curry, I am now confused as to what the conventional wisdom is because I didn't think. I mean, he won back to back MVPs. He has all kinds of records. He, in a way, you know, plugged back into the entire conversation we had for the first 30 minutes of this episode, stretching the floor, changing the game, et cetera, et cetera. And yet now I, I feel like there's a whole faction of basketball folks who just see it as bizarre that he's could be considered the best player in the league. So I, I don't know. You live up in that area. Maybe you can um, tell me whether or not that's a that's a hot take. I mean, I think for most people, it would be, uh, and even I, I, I would be hard pressed to say him at this point going forward. You know, I thought that maybe he could have had a chance to seize that crown with just a little bit better of a finals than he had. I thought actually that Kerr really did him a disservice by running him into the ground in that 47 point game, uh, that they had no chance of winning instead of trying to keep him fresh. Um, but you know, I mean, it's certainly when you look at like his averages for the series, they were really good. That game six, he only had 22 points. They're really concentrating, uh, on him but you know they they weren't able to win the series and you know he missed a big shot at the end i know that that'll make your blood boil to mention one <laughs> shot as, as being even remotely dispositive of this and maybe that's because too because to me there's so much uh if you're going to kind of crown someone right now as the best player because i think there's so much uncertainty about who that might be with some of the some guys injured and you know lebron not even making the playoffs and steph getting older and Kawhi having this great playoffs but he has these regular season issues and he's taken a step back defensively and so to me it'd be harder to pick someone as like my number one at this very moment than maybe it ever has been and so maybe i i would default to all right well who's kind of earned it and maybe you'd say well Kawhi earned it in these playoffs you know until further notice he's he's the best guy uh but no i mean i do think most people would say kd was the best and was playing at the best level until he got hurt and 
Steph wasn't playing well uh, during that period as it kind of became KD's team. And then he took over and was playing at that level, but then just wasn't able to overcome the lack of threats. So I I don't think that that's a a hot take. I think most people are like, well, you know, he's just kind of more in the three to four type of range. Uh, Okay, let's let's go through it this way, because you you hit on something that I struggled with immensely. By the way, I apologize. You're the guest, but you've kind of like been asking me questions and I've been rambling on. I'm out of practice. I've been... been uh it's been a week summer since it's, I recorded, Nate, it's so. summer podcasting you just <laughs> summer <laughs> podcasting you just go with it um i this i so i have i have sized players up basically for every season since the shot clock more than i care to admit more more passes through history than i care to admit and i would say i have never considered five players with the possibility of of hitting my number one and so for me it was Steph it was Giannis it was Kevin Durant it was LeBron who I mean he's been so much better in the playoffs consistently for the last few years Uh, it was I sort of passed uh, you know like will he still be that good how much does age and wear and the injury matter I don't know I took a conservative approach but I could even see considering LeBron and I think now we get into the maybe the controversial stuff for me based on what I can tell from feedback the last Last guy I considered was not Kawhi. It's Anthony Davis to me. Anthony Davis to me is a guy who, based on everything I saw this year, it was like one of the weirdest seasons in NBA history, given his contract situation, given the team around him. He had a really, really, really empty bare roster around him. We actually talked about this when we did an episode on your show at the beginning of the season, and we were talking about threats to Golden State in the West. And I was just, that roster was just so empty to me. And yet, what I wanted to see from Anthony Davis for the last few years, and I finally saw it this year, was enhanced playmaking, better passing, better vision, integration with these other things. You start to add that layer to his offensive game. The question mark to me actually becomes, can he play that defensive player of the year level defense? And if he does that, I think he's probably the best player in basketball. Yeah, that's uh, and his defense has been a a matter of a lot of discussion. I mean, he definitely reaches levels that are pretty incredible at times. Now, he also told Frank Vogel that he wants to uh, play the four, unless Frank like really, really wants him to play the five. Uh, well, did you see that? He said that in the presser. Yeah. yeah. Did you see the presser? Or did you read the quote? I, I read I read the quote, but I, I mean, it seemed like he was just kind of like, "Hey, I'm not going to hide." It. The quote was, "I'm not going to hide it anymore." If you didn't see it, but you know, I really want to play the four. But you know, then he turns to the coach and he's like, "Oh, uh, but I'll, I'll I'll play the five. But was it different actually seeing? I, uh, I felt like it was. The I, video? Yeah. The, when I saw the quote, my takeaway was like, "Ooh, that's a little cringeworthy." And the video had more of a vibe of like, "My preference is to play the four, but of course I'll play the five. Um, I don't think the intention either from him or the or the team and the staff is to play him at the five 35 minutes a game. That might be interesting to see going forward. But yeah, I just thought the quote was slightly misrepresentative. And also to your other point, he does have defensive inconsistencies that I think are worth talking about. But sometimes I feel like there are games where he's just locked in. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, can we see that really, really, really defining defensive season from him? Yeah. And now that he's playing with LeBron, perhaps he can bring it a little bit more defensively and and i actually think this team could be better than people think on defense Uh, this lakers team again we're gonna it's gonna take a long time to wrap my head around what the hell all these teams are especially in the west but uh that's you know with ad that's why you need a big board (laughs) yeah yeah i mean come on get with the time yeah i'll just i'll (laughs) strap it to the top of the car on this trip uh the cars on vancouver island that will do you no good (laughs) 
<laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, people, we were talking a little bit when we hung out at Summer League that uh, you're getting a little Twitter flack. Uh, welcome, welcome to uh, welcome to the big leagues, by the way. <laughs> Twitter flack? No, 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 no. YouTube. Flack. Oh, oh, YouTube. YouTube. Oh, oh, flack. Yeah. So just like like comments on the YouTube. You can't. Hey, all those comments probably help the algorithm, though. Huh? I I know, but you can't look if you've seen if you've seen uh, what's it called? Ralph wrecks the internet. There's a great moment where in the middle of the plot, very briefly, he becomes a content creator and a celebrity, and he walks into the room. They have it this big physical space called the comments. And a bunch of people come running in at him and they're like, Ralph, don't read the comments. Stay out of the comments. <laughs> it gets like that. Yeah. So um, look, Kawhi, my thing with Kawhi, it's always weird sometimes when you feel like you're higher on a player than other people and then a narrative blows them right past where you stand on the guy. Kawhi's scoring, I think it's really one of the great evolutions and stories in nba history i mean he is a monster monster score his playoff scoring there's only eight or 12 guys who kind of stack up in his space of points and efficiency relative to opponents when you adjust for those things so his scoring has been great and similarly his on-ball defense is at this point in time his strength there for me and i talk about this a lot in in my book thinking basketball there is an overemphasis on isolation scoring and to the same degree value of on-ball defense when your strengths are those things i think you get sort of deified and in his case his his weaknesses, if you will, are playmaking, passing, court vision. He does pound the rock at times. I thought he was a perfect fit for what Toronto needed. And then on defense, his team defense isn't what it used to be. He actually didn't even really have uh, a, a good final series on defense off the ball. So Kawhi's still up there. Uh, for even me. on the ball, like, do you remember like yes, they were yes. when he was guarding Draymond? They would run a pick and roll. They wouldn't switch. Uh, switch him on to Curry. They, and when they did, Curry roasted him. And they would have him play like conventional pick and roll defense, and Curry was killing him too. Like basically every time they ran pick and roll at Kawhi, it had pretty good success. Now he was also dealing with the, a knee issue, right. and you know maybe that was part of it as well. But yeah, I mean it seems like he's more you know the Giannis defense, the strength stuff. He's got incredible strength, but his his quickness has really declined. I think good job by the way by Nick Nurse noting that and really not putting him in those situations where he had to be like the on ball stopper in that final series because it it really seemed like he couldn't do it anymore. Right, and and. Going forward, I wonder how much of that leg slash knee thing is chronic, basically. Uh, you know, I, I think it is. Yeah, I tend to think it is. I have I have the same kind of like weird chronic -y stuff with uh, I'm missing a meniscus in a knee and, and it, it just starts to wear down after a while. And those chronic things become about management versus an acute injury that takes away something that you get back at a near point in the future. So if that's the case, you still have one of the top players in the league. I mean, I think I had him fifth in like the three to seven pocket. Basically, you got these super seven players right now. Like well, we've never had a top seven like this. And so he's right there. Oh, yeah. Right. He's right there. But I don't I, I think without the other stuff, um, to me, I don't see the case for him at the top. This is a quick aside. Do you think that the reason we have a top seven like this is just because there's more spacing now? That it's just harder to stop guys than ever? And that if you are going to stop them, then there's so much space that they can just easily create for others? Is that why we've got the top players look stronger than they ever have? I think that's... 
I think that's part of the equation, but I wouldn't just put it on spacing. I would say the skills that players have been developing for the last decade, last, you know, you could go back 15 years, but really the decade uh, of the 2010s and all the guys coming into the league and the players in the league developing those skills have synced up with the idea of spacing, ISO, pick what, and roll. What heavy. skills are you talking about? Uh, shooting, long range shooting. Yeah. Right. That would that would probably be the biggest one. And I'd say. And, and, and you mean you mean the you talking about the top seven guys developing those skills or the players around them? I was thinking about the talent pool in general, and then, okay. and then the fact that that carries over to the top seven guys. Like if you look at the top seven guys, I believe yeah, Giannis is really the only one who doesn't really have an outside game. Everyone else does. And if you keep going yeah. down, right, you could keep going down the list and extend that to Paul George, Jokic. Um, Lillard and Kyrie Irving are crazy good shooters. So I, that, that statement was meant with the talent pool in mind, both before it hits the league with young players, what they're going to focus on and develop, and then the players in the league. I mean, LeBron James has actually turned into a pretty solid outside shooter, which not only would have been impressive from where he was in high school, but when he started to hit his stride in 2009 and 2010, he wasn't a great outside shooter still. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's just... The pick and roll as well and spacing, it seems like in the half court, it's a little easier for guys to learn how to become better passers. It's like, okay, we're going to run a pick and roll. We're going to have one guy on the weak side or we'll have two guys on the weak side or, yep. you know, we're going to have this guy shake out of the corner. It's like, okay, you you know, it's more, it's become almost more like playing quarterback in the NFL than it ever has where you're like, okay, we know exactly where these guys are going to be. I can throw this pass at this time. I just read this one defender. If he sucks in on the big, then I got this pass to the weak side. And guys, you know, the ability to throw passes with the offhand or one-handed passes to the opposite side as well. I mean, those are just, I, you're right. I think the things that are being drilled are so much better than they ever were before um now you could say well hey everybody in the league is is doing that right so why should they be above where everyone else in the league is but maybe when you just have you know great athleticism and great shooting ability uh that that's just it can adding those type of skills can just propel you to a higher level above the rest of the league than was possible before. right 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 i would buy the idea that all the space magnifies these skills that's the idea i would buy so to your point the other the other thing i was really thinking about was the dominance of the pick and roll game and how yes we we had pick and roll basketball in different versions in the prior decades but now you have these set pieces right guy's going to be in the corner you called it if he shakes up you know how to hit that pass and you can drill hitting that pass and you'll actually see um i don't know if if it's open practices they ever do this but i've seen it in in coaching videos and things like that they're now starting to drill this in younger players how to make specific regimented pick and roll reads because so often when you run spread pick and roll you've got your options you know sort of set you know the rotations you know how they're coming uh, and you can learn to hit corners skips the shaker etc etc yeah so i did i give you enough time to defend your thesis uh, on these top 10 uh were there any other points you wanted to make about why you know you might see certain guys uh, as higher or lower i mean I, i'm I'm kind of just playing facilitator here. I, I usually really dig in on mine in March or so uh, as kind of a fun predictive exercise for what's what we might think about after the playoffs. And uh, so anything else you really wanted to hit on here? I, well, I mean, obviously, we could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, but. I think the only one that I struggle a lot with is Harden. 
and some of it is his defense. I think when you're just when you just have defensive problems, you have to be so good offensively to overcome that. The simplest the simplest thought experiment to think about this is like if you're minus half a point versus being plus a half a point on defense, that whole point is a really big deal. And I kind of think some of that is Harden's issues. But the other thing with Harden to me is he's really and maybe this is something worth talking about. Maybe we shouldn't have waited an hour to get here. But <laughs> the difference between regular season play and postseason play, and you've asked me this before, I think I'm starting to buy into the idea that it's bigger than ever. And so you can see Harden statistically, game like everything he can do in the regular season makes him one of the best offensive players in regular season history. He's still a great offensive player. He's still one of the better offensive players in regular season history. But there does seem to be a drop-off. You've talked about it with the foul drawing and things like that. I totally agree with that. But when you start to chip away at that and you have a defensive problem, that leaves me, I guess, the most underwhelmed among the other great players. I, I think his ball dominance is a massive issue for me. You basically have to build around that um how much do you lose when you start having him run 45 pick and rolls a game instead of 70 uh so i guess the last of those big seven for me was i came away the most underwhelmed by harden despite the fact that he i mean his offensive regular season was unbelievable yeah and then you throw in some of the aspects like well you got to change your whole defensive system when he's out there you really kind of have to switch because he's just never going to get through a screen uh you get the idea that this is now you know two the two superstar teammates that have been brought in he has clashed with both of them now and both have ended up leaving we'll see how it goes with russell westbrook and you know certainly those those two players who left howard and paul have been have worn out their welcome other places as well but you know you'd have to throw that in there uh and yeah so i i and the difference to me in the regular season and playoffs i think is not only increasing now because there are teams that have a different way of playing and more scouting all this thing that we've seen in a while that have been amplified but the regular season teams care less about the regular season than they ever had right. right it used to be you know in jordan's era guys were playing 40 minutes a game in the regular season and 43 minutes a game in, in the playoffs and now it's you know 35 minutes a game in the regular season and 41 minutes a game in the playoffs so that type of thing and th when you look at the scouting and the missed games and teams developing uh young players and or tanking down the end of seasons as well you know basically anything after the after the all-star break when you're going against a bad team like they're barely even playing so yeah i think it, that there is a bigger difference uh, than there ever has been all right another quick break and then i want to ask you some more questions about your book thinking basketball uh, right after this so I want to tell you about Postmates, my favorite delivery service. Been using them since back in like 2013, 2014. And what differentiates Postmates from some of these other services is they'll deliver from anywhere. They're the largest on-demand network in the U.S. They offer delivery from all of the restaurants, grocery, convenience stores, and traditional retailers that you could possibly need. Whether you want to get some alcohol delivered, if you're Having a party, maybe you don't want to leave your guests, maybe not a great time to go drive and get some of yourself. They can do that for you. If you need a breakfast burrito in the morning, you need some sushi, maybe you need some ibuprofen the next morning uh, to your hotel room. If you're on a trip, go ahead and Postmate it. We always said actually Postmates it, but uh, the copy says Postmate it. So that is what I will say now on. But again, I've been using the service for over five years now. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Anything that you need, they can deliver it within the hour. You download the app for 
Apple or Android for free, browse local restaurants and businesses, and you can track your delivery in real time as well. They even have this little icon for what kind of vehicle the guy is using. For a limited time, another reason to sign up here, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of delivery credit in your first seven days when you use the code CAPSPACE. So you get $100 worth of credit towards any delivery fees that you might get in that first seven days. When you download that Postmates app, anything you need, anytime you need it, you can just Postmate it and make sure you use that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. I were back here with Ben Taylor. You wrote this book, Thinking Basketball, published it in 2016. A a lot of it was written in the 2013 era. Uh, I guess you were just lazy and decided not to publish it. Extremely lazy. Yeah. Yeah. As as someone who uh, will never be writing a book. It's grad school. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It derailed it. I had a lot of the ideas and a lot of the, the sort of draft, if you will, written in 2013 from ideas and blog posts and all these research that I had been doing, probably starting in like 2010. And then, you know, getting to the finish line and actually uh, getting it out the door, all that process takes an additional larger chunk of time in a way. And yeah, grad school pretty much derailed me. (laughs) So what of what you advocated in that book? You know, and, and I mean, I, I've read it. It was obviously, you know, very forward thinking at the time, probably still is, frankly. Uh, but how much of what you advocated ended up coming to pass in terms of the common understanding of the game, or at least among us dorks, I mean, maybe not, you know, Joe Blow in Kansas or something who's just watching the finals uh, and or, you know, implementation by teams in which the game uh, we've seen the game evolve. I think from the dorks, uh I definitely see less of an emphasis on clutch play or just trying to isolate the last few minutes of a game for someone as a as a measure or strong proxy of their overall talent. I think along those lines, when I started writing it, hero ball and, you know, you needed a closer and a guy you could ISO at the end of games and big possessions, I think that's largely gone out of fashion. But the big one for me and I had just been thinking about it forever, but it was almost, I had this one sentence in the book around how crazy it would be if you could get a team of incredible shooters together with good passing. And I wrote that line in like 2013 or something. And again, the book isn't published, right? I'm doing other stuff. So 2014 season rolls around and you have the beautiful game Spurs. And I'm like, yes, yes, just shooters and movement and passing. Yes, this is it. And then boom, you have the Warriors. And I was like, okay, I got I to gotta publish this book. Yeah, that that's pretty funny. I So, and the other thing that I think, you know, what I've taken the most from your work is the idea of scalability of, and I was coming to some of those conclusions a little bit on my own. You know, DeMarcus Cousins was one of the guys I was talking about originally of like, okay, this guy is an offensive player who will get you from 25 to 45 wins. Right. Uh, but, but you articulated it in a much better way of just, all right, you know, if you have all these ball dominant guys, you're going to see diminishing marginal returns. Whereas if you put guys together who can shoot and pass, it's going to look awesome. Yeah. And I think, again, the 2016 Warriors really bore that out. People, oh, there's only one ball. Like, uh, no, actually, all these guys can shoot and almost all of them can pass or at least can pass well enough. Uh, and so they are going to fit together and they're going to be unbelievable. And obviously defense scales really well too. Uh, but the idea of just like what skills are going to be additive and which uh, are going to be a little bit subtractive, uh, I think is something that we've seen a lot of, especially with the Warriors, again, being a perfect example of it. Yeah, that was a huge one for me. And and I cut its teeth, if you will, in online 
basketball discussion forums over the years, developing that idea and trying to articulate it. And first, there's a realization that I still think is very true, unfortunately, which is a lot of people value floor raising, carrying that 25 win team to the playoffs more than they value taking a 50 win team to 64 or 65 wins, which to me is a is much harder. And B, it's significantly more valuable for winning playoff series and winning a title. And I think there's some very basic like psychological reasons why, you know, it's a Herculean one man effort and all that stuff. But I I have to say, when I was experimenting and kind of figuring out these ideas, there was a tremendous amount of pushback to the idea that more scalable skills, off ball skills, passing, shooting, spacing, even offensive rebounding movement, that these things were inherently more valuable or are going to get you farther in the playoffs than, you know, your ISO, your ISO scoring, your hero ball scoring. Yeah. And I think that that's one where there's still some work to be done. And there's just, there's some teams where some guys are going to be better on some teams and some guys are going to be better on other teams, right? Like uh, Suns fans. uh, And at the time I did this, Devin Booker, you know, hadn't really had the surge that he did in the middle part of last year, but I ranked Danny Green above Devin Booker in my shooting guard rankings and Sun fans are like that's completely insane if you put Danny Green on this team Devin Booker is the only guy who could score this team if you put Danny Green on our team we'd be way worse like that's ridiculous that you would possibly put Danny Green ahead of Devin Booker but when you look at Danny Green's shooting and defense and off-ball ability and and transition and all the stuff that he does you know a team like the Raptors would much rather have him because Devin Booker the Raptors have plenty of guys who can score already and they needed more shooting and defense and so yeah he's He's the guy who can push your team from 55 to 60 wins or from second round exit to a championship potentially uh, because he can play well uh, with others and he doesn't take anything off the table when he's at the highest level. So yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's something that is really weird for a lot of people, especially frankly, if you're a fan of a bad team where you just scalability is not a concern, you're just trying to get into the playoffs. So that, frankly, if you're a GM of, of some of these bad teams, you're just trying to get into the playoffs. So that's, uh, I, I think that's one that, uh, and you know, I'm not sure that there even necessarily is a right answer on some of those questions when, you know, you, a lot of these teams are just in different places and have different goals, depending on what's realistic with the talent on hand. Right, right. If your goal is to make the playoffs or financially there's value from being a 52-win team that can't quite get over the hump, I mean, I think that's fine. But through the lens of trying to win a title, and and at some point in the book, uh, I introduce a chapter on this concept basically saying, look, every team has a top score. That's a, that's a really big concept to just stop and think about from an abstract point of view. The guy I always think about growing up was like Dino Raja. Like, okay, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah or, or, or like uh, Tony Campbell yeah. on like the, the Minnesota, Minnesota Timberwolves yeah. like 1989. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember like just looking at his basketball cards and I was like, oh, yeah, 18 points a game. Like, wow. And I think he like went to like the Lakers at one point. Yep. Or maybe, yeah. Yeah. He went and, to the Lakers. And uh, I was like, oh, man, they just added this guy 18 points a game. Like, oh, they're going to be unstoppable now. It's like, right. oh, no, actually, he's going to be like their ninth man. Uh, You know, because I, I didn't I didn't quite get that until, you know, probably I was like 15 or 16 that you can't just like add up the points per game and you know there's still some some gms you haven't quite gotten that yet but but uh, it's a it's a it's a pretty big idea when you realize it and to your point about booker and green and i've also seen other people talk about this you can you can think about it this i talk about this with clay thompson a lot you can think about the idea of who's going to be your best player on a team but then 
Who's going to be your best second best player on a team? Who's going to be your best third best player on a team? So if you have a if you have a poor team or even maybe a 500 team, then Devin Booker, who I have a video coming out on at some point, so I've I've gone pretty deep on him. Devin Booker, you know he he's going to be great at that role right now. He has those skills right now. But if you're building a championship level team, you don't want Devin Booker right now to be your best player on that team. So then is he the best second best player on that team? You know, is Clay Thompson plug in there? Would you rather have him or Clay Thompson? Then you go to the third best player. Who's the best third best player on a team? So when you start team building from that perspective, I think this is really when this idea of scaling or having portable skills that fit becomes such a critical idea tobias harris is another great example from last year now this year he's going to have more chance to do stuff as one of the primary pick and roll handlers but with him and jimmy butler and then they still had him beat it and simmons to feed it as well reddick last year yeah so tobias harris you might say oh he's the best fourth banana in the league yeah i mean i guess in the abstract on a random team that might be the case right i mean he's got these credentials oh he's averaging 20 a game and he was, uh, was pretty efficient uh, but when you look at his defense, which is not amazing, and yeah, he's got some shooting ability, but his his on-ball scoring ability was kind of wasted with that team. So maybe, you know, he might have the best resume of any fourth best player on any team, right? but he's not the best fourth best player in that role. Right, exactly, exactly. And that's, I mean... This is when I started really thinking about team building and looking at the history and the success of teams. I think Jerry Krause wanted, if you read all the literature around the 90s Bulls, he wanted so much credit for building that team. (laughs) And I think from this perspective, I look back and I'm like, wow, Jerry Krause should get a lot of perspective because he essentially put teams together with that spirit in mind. You know, Dennis Rodman and his offensive rebounding and not needing the ball pairing with volume scoring is fantastic. Kukoc as a stretch big off the bench. He always had spot shooters that they could bring in the game. Uh, Craig Hodges, John Paxson, Steve Kerr. I mean, even put him at the end of the bench with guys like Bill Wennington was a stretch big who could shoot Judd Bushler, mostly for the regular season. Um, But like he had that, you can see the spirit of this idea we're talking about injected into that team. And I think you could argue that most of the really successful teams in NBA history follow that principle of, no, we're not just going to grab Another great historical guy is Michael Adams, right? He was like 25 points, 10 assists a game in the 90 or 91 season with Denver. You can't just yeah, take... Yeah, yeah, the, the Paul, the Paul right. Westhead, uh, Loyal Marymount style. Right, right, season, right. Yeah. So you can't just take that guy based on some decent statistics, based on the fact that he led a, a offensively centric, out-of-control lineup to decent results, plug it into a championship-level team, and, I mean, heck, you definitely wouldn't expect him to be the first player, but second banana, third banana, fourth banana, it starts to become difficult to see how you could actually fit that guy in a reasonable situation. So what are the biggest things in your book that teams haven't adopted yet? Mm. I would say the there's still more to be done. So there's been a lot of, obviously, we've had a spacing boom, um, passing, shooting. I think there's still more to be done with movement, which I don't talk about extensively in the book, but same principles. I think there's more to be done with movement and screening. And I think we're getting close, but there's going to be a balance I anticipate hitting at some point between guys actually getting fatigued playing 30 minutes a game because the amount of movement and the amount of screening that you can come up that just scrambles defenses into oblivion starts to take a toll on whether it's realistic to play like 42 minutes a game. 
I think until we get there, there's still stuff to unlock. Just on the movement front, how many great players in the league differentiate with movement? Yeah, I mean, Curry, Thompson would be it. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's... There I aren't mean, that many. There are some who differentiate by kind of getting their teammates to move, like like Jokic or Draymond, uh, you know, where it's like uh, Horford to some degree, where we're going to run this system where I'm going to stand there and then you're going to run and I'm going to pass you open, like that kind of stuff. Sure, sure, sure. But even within those teams, you know, Jason Tatum's got a nice back cut, but he doesn't necessarily come off screens. He doesn't... Uh, yeah. He doesn't I I am starting to think about wide receivers. Like he doesn't route run, throw his guy off. There's still more to be had on that frontier to me. So, yeah, I'm interested to see if we can ever get there. Well, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, Zach Lowe was talking about this uh on his pod last week that the first 15 games of the season, teams move much more than they even do in the playoffs because they're just too tired by that point. Like you're, you're just fresh those first 15 games of the season. And then, you know, the 82 game season wears you down. So maybe if we see some reduction in the number of games over the same amount of time, then maybe that could really help to unlock more of what you're talking about. Or, you know, again, a, a minutes reduction. But I think the reality is in the NBA that being able to play you know a Steph Curry 36 minutes a game when he's not moving quite as much as opposed to 30 minutes a game where he's moving more you're still going to see so big of a drop off over that six minutes that it just makes sense to have him out there for longer yeah and that's that's the tricky part in terms of really asking players to move more and asking you know screen setters to move it's a whole it's a whole dance that you can get into I do think the the reduction in the games I mean do you think that's going to happen do you think it's realistic that we could shave say 10 or 15 games off the schedule they put some tournament in like what do you think is realistic financially here i don't know uh and i mean it seems like for the first time the league is discussing it you know adam silver has noted that they said at least that you know there started to be some studies that people were arguing in some of these meetings that no you can reduce the number of games and an increase in revenue either from higher ticket prices or you know higher ratings than leading to uh, you know, a higher ad sales for the TV networks and, you know, the national deal wouldn't be effective because you could still have as many national games, it'd really be local TV that would be here. So it seems like they're starting to talk about that. I mean, like Baxter Holmes just wrote this piece too about how badly guys are getting overworked, you know, when they're young as well. The NBA seems very concerned uh, about that. Now that said, up until the playoffs, we actually had probably the healthiest year among stars that we had ever had. And then, you know, you have these two devastating injuries that happened to KD and uh, and Clay. So we'll see whether there's you know, a push and, and maybe it's just those two catastrophic injuries and Steve Kerr saying afterwards, I don't know if it was playing this, this long four years in a row, five years in a row. Uh, so I really don't know the answer to whether revenue would increase or not. And I don't really have the means to get it. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, there's, there's been some work done looking at the 99 and... 12, uh, 12 2012 seasons yeah but I, I don't find those to, that to be particularly persuasive for a number of reasons one being that you know the quality of play was lower the games were actually more frequent during that period as well fans were also probably pissed off because there was just a lockout where a bunch of games were missed uh, as well so you know i'm not sure and especially when you're looking at more frequent games uh, I think the fact that the ratings actually went up in 2012 with fewer games and more frequent games would be actually a data point to the positive that you could, if you spread that out more, it would only get better. But, you know, is that enough to 
counteract for the fewer games? I, I don't really know the answer to that. Well, and I also wonder, it's just a single data point, but if the idea that we are so into load management now and behind the scenes management of load, I mean, you're, the amount of burn you have in practice counts. So all of your in-season activity, I know teams are monitoring that more than ever. Maybe that's, it's again, just one data point, but this season not having any significant injuries in the regular season, uh, slight minute reductions for a lot of players, maybe that contributes to that as a factor where you could say, okay, if we shorten the season and then you run that back 10 times, maybe we're less likely to have catastrophic injuries from wear and tear. I mean, I am not a doctor, but I've been injured way too many times. And my understanding is that an injury like the one we just saw with Durant at his age is going to be wear, kind of wear and tear destruction of that Achilles over time before it finally gives. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Too. I mean, just not only in terms of like the minutes and the cumulative wear, but just simply, all right, you are out there in games for three quarters of the amount of time that used to be. It reduces the, the injury risk, of course. Now you could say, well, okay, our team's going to be like, well, now we're just going to practice harder and we're going to play guys more minutes in these games. And so it's a, it ends up being a wash. You know, maybe, maybe that could happen. The other thing that, that you might say, though, is, well, now that teams, the, especially the good teams, don't care as much about the regular season and they, Toronto had all this success with Kawhi never playing in a back-to-back and playing 60 games that you're going to have these teams basically enforcing a 60 game limit in the season regardless and so you're going to have all these crappy games that people are just going to be pissed off about and so maybe this is Adam Silver noting the handwriting on the wall of just hey we're going to have 20 bad games regardless why don't we just get rid of those and and allow guys to play a full season again because we're just starting to realize that it's not possible to do that at this level of basketball I I hope that's the conclusion that they come to and I hope the financial part doesn't get in the way and I think you know they might take an initial hit but I I think overall this is just my theory that give it a few years to balance out and it actually could be good for the league in terms of the amount of money they make I mean for the you know the stats guys out there most statistics stabilize after 50 or 60 basketball games like basically across the board you don't necessarily need the 82 game schedule to feel better about your sample size sometimes you know shooting has a lot of variability in it but everything else i mean from my standpoint i'm i'm a 40 something game season or the 50 game 99 lockout season that borders on a little short but 60 62 66 i mean back in the day the 72 all of the length of those seasons uh should have you covered from narrative from stats from analytics from i mean it it's sufficient to me let's put it that way yeah and then if you really need something that's going to be a marathon and a crucible uh the playoffs still do that right and i think one of the things that people have talked about to me on twitter are well all these career records are going to kind of be unreachable now or it'll be meaningless i i don't worry about that as much because i think to me it's more about basketball has always been more about like points per game and averages than it has been about just cumulative totals the way it is in baseball with 500 homers or 300 3000 hits or whatever it is yeah yeah Uh, i I feel the i feel the exact same way if if you're if you're worried about those career totals and all that stuff i would say write to amazon uh one click send it to the house you don't even need amazon anymore netflix turn it on a disney movie called frozen fast forward there's a there's a singing number in the middle it's called let it go (laughs) that's how we're gonna finish this podcast nate um oh well well, we're not gonna finish it with your impressions on the uh on the the caesar's buffet oh how much time do we have this is maybe Uh, we do we have five minutes for this right we promised it at the beginning i don't want to have to edit that out (sighs) that's true that's true all right where should we begin 
Well, well, I mean, you this you're coming in. This is probably like the fourth or fifth year that we've done this, but I, I thought you'd be a great addition to the group, uh, especially having heard rumors of uh, your eating pros. So just uh, as you're coming in, you know, what, what were your thoughts just on the buffet itself, which you, you'd never been to, uh, your approach, uh, everyone else's approach? I did I did some research. There's some strategizing. Uh, I found some videos to understand the layout of the buffet, the most efficient way to attack it from a macronutrient standpoint. That was critical. Uh, I did. I, I feel like I did make a bit of an error with too much dense protein up front. So I started with like, I didn't know the guy was going to cut me this giant thick slab of turkey. I'm a thin turkey guy. I like a nice thin slice of turkey. That thing must have weighed like a pound. So my first plate, I kind of had strategized out. It was some sampling. I wanted to get things that I thought looked good that I could go back to a second time. There was a great yeah. salmon burger. Go, go ahead. Where are you yeah, going to Obviously, with the idea being just, you know, enjoying yourself and the food and not eating as much as possible, right? No, 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 no. That's, really- That's not the idea at all. <laughs> Trying to eat absolutely <laughs> as much as possible. It's a part of the efficiency is a dollar per calorie calculation that must be done. Um, <laughs> so, so where was I? First plate went well. I can't remember what ended up. Oh, we had a time crunch. We had a major yeah, time that's, crunch. That's what really hurt you because you're you're just like very much like tortoise approach here. Big time. I am a Amer- I cannot eat quickly, but I do massive damage in like three to four hour meals. And I kind of I hit a stride. I get to about hour two, two and a half. I start to feel full, and then my brain's like, "Well, now you're full. Now you have to start eating for real." And that, <laughs> we, unfortunately, I, who who was it? Um, that that kept us was it nate duncan is that why we didn't no you were there early i shouldn't i shouldn't give you a hard time you were there early oh yeah no it was uh oh it was prada that's right it was my mike prada uh yeah. he was he was like I, I was like okay we'll we'll uh we'll meet there at 8 30 and he thought that meeting there at 8 30 was meeting at like <laughs> leaving, summer league leaving and we're it, all gonna go over yeah he li- because you know. <laughs> he literally thought meeting at 8 30 meant 8 30 is the time i leave to go to the place yeah, and that we were all going to leave from there. And it's like, and Katz, who also was late, by the way, Fred, Fred Katz, uh, you know, you, you can blame him for you not getting your, uh, you know, 8,000 through 10,000 calories in before it closed. Uh, he he mentioned it pretty like, yeah, you know, uh, just like all those other times when you, you're uh, you're going to dinner with someone, you you meet uh, at a given location and then go over there instead of just meeting at the restaurant. Is that how it works? <laughs> uh, I'm cracking up over here. Um <laughs> By Fred Katz, by the way, is an extremely funny human being. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. Is that public knowledge? How funny he is? Is oh yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it is he's like real, actual life funny in addition to bad Twitter puns funny. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so. no, he's been he's been on the pod before. He's always he's probably our, the funniest guest that we have. I, I, he's got so much competition on that, but. Uh, so I would also say, so this buffet is impressive. I hadn't been to a real like proper buffet in decades, probably. And it the food is really good. Um, the layout is impressive. And I, I was I was a little blown away by how much you guys like like to put on the plate and then not eat. You know, I know that's standard practice, <laughs> but I was I was if the plate was there, my goal was to kill that plate before i went to the next one yeah i mean sometimes there's they have like you know probably over a hundred items at this buffet i mean it's not possible even for me to eat an entire portion of all those things and some things you just don't know whether it's going to be any good until you try it so i think you have to be willing to you know just 
acknowledge the sunk cost of a certain dish and just move on. Yeah, yep, yep. So it was good. It was... Um, Especially when that sunk cost is nothing because yeah. it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it was good. All right, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll try to get you there a little bit earlier. We had those pesky, like, actual summer league games to watch uh, before we, we got started. But uh, I, I don't want to give you a, an excuse next time uh, that, you know, you didn't have uh, enough time. We'll get you there at, like, 4 p.m. I, yeah. <laughs> How long are you actually allowed to stay there and eat? I mean, can you graze all day? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure that's, like, the concept. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought there was a time limit or they... Yeah, I mean, of... I'm sure if you were just sitting there and... And like you know doing some work on your computer and not eating anything eventually someone would say something but i think if you're continuing to eat uh they'll they'll let you stay there all right maybe if we would do, do uh i'm gonna try and go there for the showcase this year that the, those games are a lot less interesting than summer league so maybe that'll enable enable us to get started early if, if you go to that yeah next time next time a nice three to four hour window um we can get some good grazing on and um and yeah we'll do it properly all right. Well, I, I hope you guys think that we did this podcast properly. Uh, those of you who skipped to the end, <laughs> uh, good, just to good hear move. Buffet, good move. I hope it, I hope it was worth it for you guys. And uh, we'll catch you all. We're gonna be back on the normal summer schedule now. Um, generally Sunday nights and Wednesday nights around then, depending on. Uh, where I actually am, but it'll be within a day of those or so. Danny will be back uh, in civilization on Sunday. I will probably be coming to you from Lake Louise, Alberta uh, on Sunday night. So we will talk to y'all then. Save yourself some time and spend 15 minutes to get that information directly into your brain. And right now you can get 25% off your first year at Blinkist.com slash Capspace. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.